Hello and welcome to We Recover Loudly, the podcast shaking up conversations about addiction, recovery and drinking cultures in hospitality. This podcast aims to break down the walls of silence around addiction and recovery in the industry. The episodes will be a mix of personal stories from myself and from other sober champions with experience of working in hospitality, as well as interviews with hospitality leaders who are providing training and resources to assist in creating sustainable workplace environments. We will discuss mental health, stress and other challenges in the industry that can lead to addiction, challenging the work hard, play hard mentality. So let's turn it up and get loud because when we recover loudly, we stop others dying quietly. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, The Burnt Chef Project. The Burnt Chef Project is a globally recognised, not-for-profit social enterprise. They're fully committed to making the hospitality profession healthier, more sustainable, by focusing on people's well-being first. Launched in May 2019, the Burt Chef Project was set up with the sole intention of eradicating mental health stigma within hospitality. They offer free resources online, such as wellness action plans and team checking guidelines. You can also book mental health first aid courses through the website, as well as other bespoke training courses for your hospitality team. I've been an ambassador with the organisation for over 18 months and I'm proud to be a part of such an inspiring and forward-thinking community. For more information, check out their website and their socials. Links are all there in the show notes. Right, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of We Recover Loudly. This week, I am chatting with Chris Hall. Chris Hall is the founder of the Burnt Chef Project, a nonprofit business tackling mental health issues within the hospitality industry. After seeking help for challenges with his own mental health, he founded the organization after realizing other people were experiencing these same feelings, but not necessarily talking about them openly. He decided to focus on hospitality. The reason for this, we will be discussing shortly. And since its inception, the Burnt Chef Project has helped thousands of individuals and companies worldwide by providing training, support resources, free education, fundraising. The goal is to burn away that stigma surrounding mental health within the worldwide hospitality trade. And over the last four years, Chris and the team have been instrumental in the shift towards open conversations and facilitating that change. So we've got some big topics to discuss today alongside of course, talking about Chris's views towards addiction within hospitality. But before all of that, how are you, Chris? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. I'm having, uh, as we discussed off air, a, a quiet point of reflection about my own relationships with alcohol. So it's a prominent time, a good time to have a conversation at this moment. I think a lot of us tend to have those questions about our relationship with alcohol after a particular event or weekend, perhaps after going to Malaga. A lot of us start to go through those thought processes, that's for sure. Before we get into the nitty gritty, the Bird Chef Project, it's been going for four years. What was the motivation behind starting something that was hospitality focused? I fell in love with hospitality when I started working in it and I've worked in many sectors. So, you know, I'm not a chef. I never have been a chef. I wouldn't be able to be a chef. So I come at this from an outsider's perspective 
I've worked in bars and nightclubs down in Bournemouth. So I used, used to have jobs in hospitality for fun. It was good. I enjoyed the social aspect of it. I enjoyed the nightlife. I enjoyed that even once your shift had finished, you could stay behind and, and have a few drinks as well. I liked all of that. But my main roles were managing sales teams in various various different industries. So one thing that always allured me about hospitality was also the one thing or the couple of things that actually led me to setting up the Burnt Chef project. And the catalyst for me was I was managing a sales team within a food wholesale division. We were supplying some fine dining restaurants and you know I was working with some incredible people, some chefs who became my friends. And I was getting to inspire and drive creativity with unique ingredients that have been pervaded from around the world, you know, Albert truffles and finger limes and Peruvian yams and blowfish watermelons and all these things that people now might be looking at Google for to actually try and figure it out. But these things are cool, right? There was a light in people's eyes when you talked about these sort of things. And during that time, I started to exhibit reckless behaviors in terms of using alcohol and unhealthy management of my own mental health state because despite everything was really good within work and you were having a great work-life balance as such, what I was struggling with was a big personality identity crisis. I hadn't really ever found myself, didn't know who I was. And finally, the mask of the jester was starting to slip off and I was finding that I wasn't able to keep up a, a lie, really. I wasn't able to keep up this fakery of what I people perceived me to be in terms of my values. There was no substance to me. I had nothing. I had no core. And then that resulted in me ultimately becoming quite unwell. And that had been something that had been happening for many, many years. And it finally resulted in me going to go get some mental health support. So I went through some therapy over the course of six to eight months. And I then took another two years to really find who I was and to reestablish my core values and find out who the fuck is Chris Hall? Like, who is he? What's he made of? What does he believe in? What does he think he can be? What, you know, all these things, which if you're listening to this, you might think, well, I worked all that out at the age of 15, 16. For me, it never happened. And here I am at 27, 28 years old, trying to establish who I am so that I can actually have a decent grounding in this world. Because I genuinely walked around that everyone had a big empty space in their head and didn't have anything going on. And, and here I am was questioning every last decision I would make. And was it right? Was it wrong? Have I said the right thing? Have I upset that person? Should I be different? Do I need to be more like this? Should I be more like that? And that, that was intense. And that was really hard. So after recovering, I started to open dialogues and have conversations about what I'd gone through with people. And, you know, you stood in kitchens and talking to people about your therapy and talking to people about what you discovered about yourself. And it was an interesting response. You were always seeing that light that people would get when you were talking about that creativity and looking at you know new ingredients for menus was suddenly a slightly different light, but still a spark of, look, we don't talk about this thing, but I kind of get, I know what you're going through, or I know what you've been through in some guys, but we don't talk about it. So there was this oxymoron of oh, well, it's really nice to have this conversation versus the stigma and the shame and the the way that we've been taught in hospitality to put that mask back on and keep it firmly on, you know, pretend that everything's okay. And it was only ever meant to be really a photography campaign just to try and raise some awareness in the local area on the south coast of England. But it turns out that hospitality 
is a fantastic and, and brilliant industry, but it's an industry that also experiences the same sort of challenges, whether you're in the south coast of England or you're in Canada or the USA or Australia or South Africa or Dubai. Actually, it turns out that there are thousands upon thousands of other individuals who also wanted to have a conversation. Absolutely. It is. It's a, you know, hospitality. It's a language that we speak the same language wherever you are in the world. It has the same challenges, the same pulls, but also the same incredible environments to work in. You know, it is hands down the best industry. And thank you for sharing so openly. I've got so many things I want to ask you. When you were going into the kitchens after you were recovered, as you said, what was it that drove you to be so open with these chefs? As you say, it's not a conversation starter that most salesmen come in and say, hey, I've got these truffles, but by the way, I'm doing CBT. Anyone want to chat? (laughs) What kind of brought that about? I think when we talk about salespeople, there's a stigma around the word salespeople or sales profession. And often you think that, you know, your sales rep needs to come into your kitchen and try and flog you some out of date stock. And that's a generalization. But I think that, you know, it's like, it's almost like car salespeople or double glazing salespeople. And there's nothing wrong with those professions. But one of the things that both I prided myself on, as well as trained my team on, was actually how to forge strong relationships with people. Everything else fell into place after that. It didn't matter about out of date stock. It didn't matter about any of those things. What mattered was that when you walked into an environment like a kitchen, which can be very, very, demanding, you know, time pressured and can be quite hostile environments. But when you walked into a kitchen and people knew it was you, you know, the first thing you get given is a cup of coffee. And, you know, if there was any cake or freshly made bread from that day, you know, the pastry chef would come over and give you that. And, you know, even if it was middle of service, which usually if you're a salesperson within hospitality is a complete no-no. And during my early days, I did get manhandled out of a few kitchens. But, you know, it got to the stage where if I turned up at one o'clock in the afternoon mid-service, and they were busy, I could instantly feel it and I'd roll my sleeves up and get involved and try and help where possible. So when it came around to having these conversations, these conversations weren't, hey guys, do you want to buy some stock from me? They were like, what's going on with your week? You know, how are you? You don't seem to use yourself today. Like, you know, and it was interesting because those conversations were happening with someone from outside externally. But when that conversation continued, and you started picking at the threads and you realized actually there were a lot of people within that environment who felt that they couldn't talk through no fault of the leadership teams, but the stigma was so strong that other people were feeling like I was feeling and weren't able to ask for help, which was really, really quite curious. So that led me to really starting to pick open the threads. And I remember a mate of mine, Pete, and I, we used to sit down outside on the oil barrels, you know, in between service. And he said to me, ah, oh, Chris, he said, he was very open with me. He said, I've experienced difficulties with, you know, drink and, you know, mental illness, et cetera. He said, but it's the industry it will never change. And these are the reasons why. And we used to sit and talk and talk and talk and talk. And all that time people were going, it will never change. It's just the way it is. It's the long hours. It's the lack of leadership. It's being employed for one role. And actually mm-hmm. the owners want a completely different thing done it's a whole host and a whole myriad of various things that ultimately make this a really challenging industry that we want to leave at the age of 30 35 unless students want to come into because it's not promoted as a profession of choice it's promoted as a real short shelf life and so the mental health conversation was just the starting which was this is having an impact on our sector 
this is having an impact on individuals, whether you're operations, front of house, back of house, and something needs to change because if it doesn't, we're not going to have an industry left. And obviously this was all BC before COVID, you know, this was a train that was already starting to derail that might have taken another five, 10, 15, 20 years. It might have taken less, but then COVID came in and, and really exacerbated that. Absolutely. I think COVID has created in a way that perfect storm of forcing operators and forcing people to have conversations both within themselves and within their organizations that, like you say, have until now been put off in terms of, well, we're too busy. We haven't got time to focus on this. We've got to look at sales. We've got to look at this. You know, the exact same kind of friction comes up when you talk about alcohol and alcohol use within the industry. You know, well, we work long shifts. Well, we're under great immense pressure. Well, when you've done a service and you've done 400 covers and you've got, you know, a tiny window to get your orders in, none of us want to sit around doing breath work and chatting about the shift and what we could have done better. And I think it's really interesting that now there does seem to be a turning of the tide, but it is definitely still within its infancy. And certainly when it comes to alcohol, I think because the purpose that it serves is one that is so viscerally successful in the moment, i.e., it completely winds you down. It is a relaxant. You know, it is something that can turn off that brain. It can transform your character from being one of alert attack into one of relaxation. I think that even adds to the challenge when it comes to trying to convince people that there are other ways of coming down from those intense services or, or just generally spending their time. It is interesting, isn't it, that the fact that we're in these high-stress environments and what we've been taught is how to self-manage those with drugs, with alcohol, with, you know, coping mechanisms that perhaps aren't the healthiest, but we haven't ever been taught that those high-stressful environments aren't sustainable and they've just become the norm, right? We know that we have to work 10, 12, 13, 14, 15-hour shifts. We know that if someone says they work an eight-hour shift, we laugh and say it's part-time. You know, we, this has all become normalized, but what we haven't done is we haven't actually looked at the fact that we're just flesh and blood and we are not able to perform like robots in incredibly demanding environments for such a long period of time without having to rely upon things that are going to change that. And it's, we're still not there yet. We're still not having the right conversations. We're looking at remedial actions to fix it the problems, but not the cause of the issues in the first place. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting industry. You won't find another quite like this one. Absolutely. It is a completely uniquely brilliant industry. But like you say, it takes a unique perspective in order to deal with challenges because of the way that we work. You know, some people have likened it to kind of the emergency services and as much as there's that intensity there's thinking on your feet there's crisis control there's emotions that are incredibly high but at the same time you're just serving like burgers and chips you know it's like the proportion of energy and adrenaline that it takes to run a shift sometimes compared to somebody who can sit in an office or like myself who sits doing you know hanging out with spreadsheets all day I mean, it's a completely different way of having to deal with, like you said, those mental health challenges. And I really related to what you were saying about the whole mask wearing. And We've discussed this before on the podcast. You know, our industry is one that 
you kind of almost check everything at the door when you get to shift. You know, I used to work places where you'd have showtime on the back of the staff door. And as you walked in, everything just has to fall away. You know, you forget about everything that's happening outside. You forget your basic needs. You might not eat for 12 hours. You forget to have that drink of water that you put on the side eight hours. You have a cold cup of tea. I don't think I ate hot food for 17 years. (laughs) Even now it feels a little bit weird when I've made a meal, (laughs) put it on the table. I'll walk away for an hour (laughs) and then come back to it. I mean, there's just there's so much involved when it comes to, like you say, checking yourself at the door. And in a way, it's necessary. In a way, it is necessary because we are serving others. People are coming to the restaurant because they want to be served to a standard. It's an exchange of money for service. You know, they don't need me coming to the table and bringing my own day with me. I mean, how can we balance that as an industry? The whole not necessarily leaving our own simple needs at the door, but also ensuring that we're prioritizing the needs of the customer. I think we need to firstly look at how we service ourselves as well as just being in service of others because we're not slaves right we're in the hospitality profession it's a job it's a gainful employment so we need to start looking at how we start servicing ourselves through education now I agree with what you're saying with regards to how, you know, if I'm a customer, you don't particularly want me sobbing into your food at night because you've had a disagreement at home. But also, I think one thing that COVID has shown us is that we truly value authenticity and human connection. And what hospitality has in abundance is human connection. It's that opportunity to connect with members of your own tribe and your community in an environment that's mutually accessible and enjoyable and to have a resounding impact on your period of time. But you also, for me, I connect with my server. I connect with the person who is at the front door. I connect with, you know, if the chef comes out of the kitchen, I value that one-on-one connection. And if someone comes up to me and says, do you know what? I'm having a bit of a slow service today. It's been a bit tough. And here are the reasons why. And I may be in the minute, I may be in the few and far here, but I would prefer for that to happen rather than someone to not say anything and to try and pretend that they are just a robot and that they're not servicing themselves. So it's a tricky one in the same way that arguments can be had that customers will not pay more for their food. And that's the reason why we're in this problem in the first place. But actually, I think that people will be surprised if you do put your menus up by one, two pounds, or if you do actually start serving with authenticity to show that you are a human being, I think you might be quite surprised. And quite frankly, if someone comes into my business, if I owned a restaurant and they didn't like the fact that my server was, you know, open and honest and transparent about perhaps they were having a tough shift and, you know, they just wanted to share that because someone asked how they were, then they probably don't deserve to be eating in that restaurant in the first place, right? Absolutely. And I think you're right. It is going to be a really difficult, in some ways, it's a difficult ask for operators to encourage authenticity and to encourage team members to be human, because effectively, the fear is that that affects the tills at the end of the day. And while it's someone like yourself, someone like myself, we would absolutely applaud somebody who goes kind of goes beyond the robotics of service and really kind of makes the effort makes the experience of eating out special or you know like you said if they're having a bad day shows us that but 
I think I worry that Joe Public potentially just wants a burger and chips. And that's unfortunately where it kind of falls down and potentially is where sometimes businesses, operators will then take the viewpoint of, well, I'm just going to hire another robot rather. I don't want to invest in this. This is above my pay grade type thing. Because effectively, what do operators want? Money in the tills. Mm. And I mean, that kind of sidelines slightly to my question about mental health training within hospitality and, you know, the mental health first aid training, which I did myself through Burnt Chef last year. And it was excellent. There's a feeling that amongst people that it has become a tick box exercise. And I was curious as to what your view on that would be. The training itself is invaluable in terms of being able to upskill individuals in something that none of us really know a great deal about. I mean, if you think about the subject of mental health and the lessons that you were taught at school about this, if you're anything near my age of 36, chances are you probably weren't taught a single thing. So here we are, you know, 30s, 50s, 40s, getting taught about a subject matter that no one really had any comprehension about 10 years ago. So the training, and similarly with our mental health awareness training, which is three hours, these are valuable training sessions that upskill individuals. However, we as an industry, as a hospitality community, we are incredibly good at reacting to various situations, right? We are very, very good at table 20 has turned up an hour before their foods arrived. They want to sit down now. Can we do it? Yes is our response. We'll fix that now. Our avocados haven't turned up from the supplier today. You know, what can we do about it? That's fine. We'll go out to the shop. We'll go get it fixed, right? We get these things done. But what we also see in hospitality is knee-jerk reactions, snapbacks to responding to situations. So when you have the younger generation now coming into work environments and saying, I really struggle with anxiety and customer-facing roles, and I'd like to know how you're going to help with this, or what we're starting to see is the increase in people talking about their illnesses within the workplace now because they've had this paradigm shift that COVID has brought around of actually being able to understand that I live, therefore I might need to work to continue to live, but I don't live to work. I'm not here specifically for that purpose. And then you can put people back in high-stress environments and all of a sudden you've got operators having to respond to that because your management teams won't know how to because they probably haven't been trained before. Your individuals and peers and colleagues won't know how to be. And you know that actually, and our data shows that people are leaving job roles because of the fact that they feel shamed and stigmatized about mental illness, irrespective of if that's the employer or society. So we're now looking at how can we fix this? There's got to be a quick fix to this. The quick fix is let's get some mental health first aid training. That'll fix it. When we'll be able to open conversations all the time and everything will be rosy. But actually, until we start addressing the root causes of some of the reasons for mental illness in the first place, such as the profoundly high levels of stress, we're just firefighting. We are just having to sit another table an hour earlier and to run down the shops and get up supplies because our supplier hasn't turned up rather than actually looking at the reasons why it hasn't turned up or why people are turning up an hour for their table in the first place. So we need to be more dynamic. We need to use our creative brains. We need to use our experiences within this industry to start saying, hold on a second, why are people leaving 
you know, why do we have 125% turnover rates on average in hospitality when it's 10 to 15% elsewhere? Why are we looking at such drastically high rates of mental illness and unfortunately loss of life as well within hospitality rather than going, that's just hospitality, almost like a, you know, a comedy sketch. Absolutely. I mean, the amount of times during my 17 years of working front of house, now I look back, I excused not only behaviour towards me, but also my own behaviour based around its hospitality and the level of just that acceptability of that just being the norm, the stress, the long hours, the pay that could sometimes be low or not come in, the aggression that you would get from some customers, the firefighting that would be day in, day out. I mean, when it comes to alcoholism and alcohol and drug misuse within the industry, you know, there's a big conversation regarding personal responsibility versus industry responsibility. And I can mean you kind of slightly touched on it there when it came to mental health and stress and those kind of challenges that we find, you know, where is the responsibility for the industry to ensure we're creating and safeguarding environments that don't exacerbate that versus, well, it's your personal responsibility to know not to drink to excess. It's your personal responsibility to maybe not do that job. If you're a highly sensitive person, which is definitely something I identify as, if you have ADHD, which I've recently been diagnosed, don't do that job because you will not be able to succeed in it because of those limitations. Where do you feel that kind of personal responsibility versus industry responsibility lies? <laughs> That's a very good question. I'm not in the habit of pointing fingers and blaming, and, and we, you know, we get asked to all the time, and that's not our bag, quite frankly. I think what we have to recognize is that individuals haven't been taught on how to manage their own health and well-being. Quite frankly, I mean, I at this moment in time have, have definitely burnt it hard at both ends with regards to work and personal life, and that's taking its toll on me. You know, and I'm in a fortunate position where I can recognize those signs and I'm able to be able to try and put some safeguards in place to actually start to remedy that and to be able to get back on a, an even kill. But how many people who have been working, you know, in busy bars or in heavily demanding environments have had the four and a half, five years of mental health experience that I've had? No one, not one person. So, to ask someone to go and take responsibility for their own health and well-being when they work in an environment that is continually high stressful, it's very difficult to see the wood through the trees. It's very, very difficult to be able to ask that person to take plausible responsibility in the same way that it's also very difficult for the industry to take responsibility for every last 72 million hospitality professionals worldwide. Because in reality, the operational teams are also under tremendous high levels of pressure and stress. And they're always being pushed harder and harder to make more money out of less. So for them to actually have the breathing space, the headspace to be able to create long-term sustainable change for individuals within their environment, it's also really, really challenging. So this is not an easy subject to tackle. Does that make it impossible? No. You know, four years ago, I, I got called mad for the fact that me, little Chris, could change just one operator's thought process on this particular subject, the subject of mental health and well-being and leadership. And yet here we are today in you know 128 countries and 
we've got a hundred plus ambassador applications still waiting to be processed because there are so many people on a global platform who want to help us rally rally the war cry. But what I think we have to all plug together is we need to find our voices. And again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, be in service of yourself first. So if you find that reward mechanisms are around drugs, around alcohol, if you find that stress levels within an environment are unsustainable and they are having an impact on your behaviors, then have a conversation with your leadership team. Now I can already hear the voices on the podcast going, if I speak to my boss about this, either I'm going to lose my job or I'm going to be ridiculed within the workplace. And yes, that is also still the reality. We've got to face facts that there are a lot of individuals out there who may not have had the education or the perspective that we wish they could have. But until we start discussing these things openly, leadership teams are not going to feel the urgency to start investing into learning how to have these conversations and mechanisms to repair it. So the other thing, and the other big bugbear of mine, is that as a hospitality community, we are all shouting from the same hymn book when we say, we want more people to come into this fantastic industry. Let's get them in. And there are organizations such as you know Hospitality Rising that are trying to bring people in as much as possible and celebrating the great things about hospitality, all of which I fully believe in. However, when we sit down in a room of 20 hospitality professionals and ask those with children if they trust the hospitality industry with their children, it's a resounding no every single time and until we can get that no into a yeah do you know what actually i do know of one or two employers i'd let my child work for we are going to continue to repeat the mistakes that we've made yesterday i mean my dad never wanted me to work in the industry and he would say because of my personality type being that i am quite soft i'm quite maternal i would get eaten up and spat out by businesses again and again because i didn't have at the time, those personal boundaries to know what was acceptable and what wasn't. And, you know, every time I'd kind of either leave a job or the decision will be made for me, I would be a broken shell of a human. I would, at that point, my drinking will have increased because I would drink because of the intense shame that the spiral of the responsibility and the failure and all of that that was going through my head so for me that's kind of how I used to drink it would be very episodic almost like bad things happen drink 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 good things happen no drinking and I can remember him saying that and I mean I he he would say you know stop going in the ring you keep getting beaten just stop going in the ring and at the end of my career in front of house so this was after I operated 10 months into COVID in the company I was working for. And by the time I was finished, so this is after 17 years of service, I have developed fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain condition. I've got chronic fatigue. I've damaged my vocal cords because I used to work when I was had sore throats and I'd lose my voice, but I would carry on working because we couldn't cover my shifts. Apparently, my jaw is slightly unaligned because I clenched my teeth because of the stress. You know, there's all of these things. Now, my personal responsibility to that is probably because I should have at some point said, guys, I can't work. I need to have time off. I mean, I was meant to have my tonsils out three times and that got rearranged because <laughs> I couldn't get cover. Tonsils are still intact, by the way. And this is now across multiple companies. This isn't just me in one company getting pushed beyond my capability. So yes, I should have probably had the ability to go, I'm struggling, I'm drowning. But to be honest, 
our industry is one that celebrates, and I do think it still does, celebrates 80-hour shifts, 90-hour weeks. Yeah, push, push, push. And for me, that's what meant that I, in the end, had that complete breakdown. And now I'm suffering with kind of lifelong conditions because of it. I don't know whether or not I could have stopped that runaway train. And I suppose in that respect, we really are asking operators to be able to say, I mean, I didn't have anyone to talk to. And again, across multiple businesses. And yeah, this is in the past, obviously. I never had anyone I could have gone to speak to, honestly. Never. Because of that shame. Because I don't think that person would have known how to have that conversation either. Which is why when I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia and all of that, I was so happy to find the burnt chef so that I could start being a part of that solution and start those conversations. And it's it's incredible work that us ambassadors do. When it comes to mental health, though, when you go into restaurants, you go into the operators now, I am noticing more so that when you say, what are your mental health policies? Well, places don't necessarily have a policy in place. They'll at least be a little bit of, oh, yeah, well, we're going to maybe and we've heard about this. And But when you say alcohol, everybody gets very quiet. Everybody kind of looks to the side, suddenly gets very busy with the stop take. I personally feel alcohol is a mental health issue because it destroys your mental health. Do you see that there is a gap potentially within current mental health workplace training within our industry? Is there a gap? I think there are many gaps. I and mean, we're seeing now the conversation of and the training around menopause, for example, which is something that women have lived with since Adam and Eve, if you believe in that, or the dawn of time or evolution, right? It's biologically it's set out in your path. But actually, now we're actually starting to question the impact that it has on people and how we start to help with that. So we're we're starting to see conversations. Similarly, we are seeing conversations around things like alcohol use, but most organizations, unlike a mental health policy, will have an alcohol and a drugs policy, but that probably hasn't been reviewed in many years, may not have even been read by many employees. And I think that actually leadership teams perhaps haven't been trained on how to effectively help and support someone because you know, you are going to have a higher proportion of people within your organization who are using drugs and alcohol as, as a crux. And ironically, as a crux to combat their addiction to high levels of stress and chronic stress and burnout, right? Because it's nice when you've cut yourself badly uh, during a shift or you've, you know, you've got a the flu and you've done a 15 hour shift and people say to you, thank you. We wouldn't have got through that today. Those endorphins make you feel good. And they also make you feel slightly superhuman and go, actually, I can push through these illnesses. So I think, you know, we also need to look at policies and training. Yeah. But we need to look at stress. You know, it's, it's a legal requirement within the UK that actually and Canada and America, actually, that stress is mitigated as a duty of care to people to make sure that high levels of stress do not impact our health. And yet one organization in the last four years that I've worked with, I've actually seen a stress risk assessment, a generic stress risk assessment, but a stress risk assessment. So I think we need to do more in terms of being able to educate around the use of alcohol, reward mechanisms, monitoring conflicts when they're occurring, starting to document when people are, are perhaps have turned up to work under the influences of alcohol and drugs and starting to delve down into, is there a pattern here? Is there a reason why? Do people understand what our drugs and alcohol and stress policies are? 
do they feel that they can open a conversation around it? And do we know where to get support and ask for help if needs be? And the sooner organizations can do that, then the sooner individuals can start to ask, ask for the appropriate help. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned drug and alcohol policies, but they are normally based around if you are found doing drinking, drinking or doing drugs, you are fired. Mm-hmm. You know, like that for me is my memory of the policies. There was nothing involving like you said, it's about us encouraging in the same way that we're encouraging people to be curious about their team members, get to know them. It's about having individualized support rather than just assuming that everybody is the same and being curious about, you know, hang on a second. Shell's normally quite loud and bubbly. She's been quite quiet for a couple of weeks. That's not her personality type. We've noticed that. Let's check in with her and make sure that, you know, the worst thing that then follows of that is, Shell, let's have a 10 minute chat Friday, you know, and it's a Wednesday and you go home and go, oh my God, I am being fired on Wednesday, you know, that whole dynamic. But it's about kind of, I think, making sure as managers that we are curious to notice the nuances of the personalities within the team, because it's not going to be a case of if suddenly everyone in the team's quiet, they've got a problem. I mean, that person's always quiet, then what are you going to look for next? You have to get to know your team on an individual level. You know, we talk about acceptability and inclusiveness. And yet sometimes I think we're very guilty of treating people as a unit opposed to taking that time. I don't necessarily think that's just our industry, though, to be honest. I think that's across the board. Well, so in a previous life, I used to work as a telesales manager in a really busy call center. Okay. And I did that for four years. And this is why when I say I love hospitality, I love hospitality because I lost my soul there. I was probably now looking back quite clinically depressed for quite some time because it was horrible. The management side of things was great fun. You know, people, building people up and and teaching them skills and, and working with them was great. But the job role itself was soul destroying. But one of the things that I was taught in four years of, of management training was that you need to be sitting down with your teams at least once a week, possibly even once a month to talk to them and not, you know, here's your metrics. You haven't done or you have done this. Well done. See you again a month more. How's it going? Like, what's going on? Are you okay? Is there anything interesting happening in your life at the moment? You know, what, what sort of things do you do at the weekend? Because what you'll be able to tell is what stage that person is at like are they having a good work-life balance are they having good interactions outside of work are they you know if they said they've walked the dogs two days in a row you know it sounds like they're getting a great deal of physical activity and that will have a direct impact on their performance within the workplace so that when it comes around to having conversations about poor performance you can say you know everything sounds like it's going well at home so is there a gap in your skill set that we can fill in or is there something to do with your will here you know is there something about the job that you're not you're not quite fond of but until you're able to find out if everything's okay elsewhere you're not able to actually effectively performance manage someone so it's so so vitally important and so many people i spoke to i asked them just out of curiosity when was your last review and one lad said to me he said oh he said uh, i'm getting a promotion i said that's great i said but um when was your last review he said four years ago yeah. i said okay four years ago you were promised a promotion. And that was the last time you spoke to your senior leadership team. And he said, yeah. Mm-hmm. He said, so how do you feel about that promotion? He says, well, I feel a bit disheartened actually, because it doesn't seem like it's coming, but I'm also really anxious because what happens if it does come and I'm not skilled for it? And I'm like, you need to be checking in with your teams regularly. You need to be just having open dialogue and being able to say to people, 
what's going on in life? Tell me about all the great stuff that you do up to, or tell me that you know you're not up to very many stuff. And how can we help facilitate additional things outside of work? You know, how can we be your be your support mechanism? But as a catalyst, as something on that actually is that also we do so without detriment to ourselves. We do so without saying, okay, you can phone me at three o'clock in the morning if you're struggling to sleep, and I'll have that conversation with you because as a leader, that's not not embodying what you would expect to see from a healthy workforce that say, I'm not well enough to do this and I can't, you know, we need to be putting in place those healthy boundaries. Yeah. I mean, I'm so guilty of that as a leader and just as a person. And I've learned that over the last two years of doing, you know, of sobriety and doing a lot of inner work that I'm very much fall into that rescuer personality type. And you know, what I've learned in the rooms of AA, they use the analogy, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you help out others. You know, and it is, it's so true. Being able to help people now from my own place of strength with those boundaries is something that brings great joy, but I can certainly remember it almost felt that if you weren't hurting by helping somebody else were you really helping them I think again you know when we live in this and when we work in an industry that's all about serving others I really like how you said you can only serve others if you've served yourself you know one of the things I did want to touch on before we wrap up because I could talk to you all day We'd mentioned alcohol at the beginning of the show that you were starting to maybe question your own relationship with it. I did a podcast episode a few weeks ago called Do You Have to Be an Alcoholic to Give Up Alcohol? Because I think it's something that, especially in our industry, there's a lot of, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so why shouldn't I? And I think personally for me, I stopped myself from getting help way before I could have and put myself and my family and my work people and all of that through a hell of a lot more pain because I was so scared of that word and the implication of saying do you know what I'm just gonna have some time off alcohol for a while because the immediate questions come storming in so I was just wondering what your kind of viewpoint was and you know as obviously as much as you want to share about your own thoughts on this at the moment yeah so the burnt chef project is an incredible beast that has grown exponentially for four years. And with that, there's a lot of pressure in terms of managing a workforce of 17 now within the organization and an incredible group of ambassadors that are 150, 160 strong and growing. There's a lot of responsibility on on shoulders and that's not getting any less at all. And almost ironically, I'm in the weeds like you would be during a busy service, you know, you know, you've got 200 covers a night and you think, all right, fuck, I just got to get through it. Just got to do this one last service and hopefully it'll be all right. But actually what I'm not getting any time to do is to build better, more rigid structures to save me being in the firing line so frequently. And so whilst the project in itself is incredibly strong, what I have noticed is that actually, again, I've started to use alcohol as a coping mechanism. And that's not seeking behavior. I'm not going out going, God, I really need a drink tonight and I just need to smash down a couple of bottles. It's the poor decision-making that comes with having one or two drinks, feeling the effects of those drinks and going, I've started now, so I might as well, you know, might as well finish. And, oh, do you know what? This is such a relief for me. It's, you know, it's, there's no decision-making. I don't have to worry about anything because I'm under the influence. So it's absolutely fine. And it's that, it's that pulling off of the break that I've been questioning now for a number of months in terms of, it does impair my judgment. 
It does impair my ability to be effective during the week, even after just a single glass of beer or wine in the evening. I wake up in the morning and I feel it. And I'm really, really starting to question why I continue to poison my body with something that doesn't make me feel great in the same way that smoking or vaping doesn't make me feel great. So I just don't do them. Whereas alcohol, and it was really interesting, actually, I was on the train on the way back from Exeter. We trained a load of college students and because it was Exeter and it was nice and close, I managed to get a a, a sneaky first class upgrade because it was only a couple of stops. And the guy came along and he says, do you want a beer? I went, he said, look, it's sunny outside. You might as well. I said, yeah, okay. All right, fine. I'll have a beer. It's free. And he put this beer in front of me and I sat there and I had a sip. I was like, I don't want this beer. But then the second thought was my old rugby mates going, best not leave that open. You've got to finish it off now. Like, don't leave, that's a waste. And especially, you know, you work with producers as well. You go, someone's taking time and energy and money into putting that into a can. And so then I was stuck in between this, like this, this circle of, well, I've got to finish it, but I don't actually want it, but it's the right thing to do to finish it. And I remember walking away from it. I didn't touch it again after that. And I felt both proud and also guilty at the same time. I felt guilty for the the manufacturer and the and the time and the effort and the impact on the environment that I'd had. But I also felt proud that I hadn't continued to put poison into my body. But these thought processes are coming up more frequently, and I find myself having more conversations about it. The hardest thing for me is to try and undo the twenty years of conditioning especially being a rugby yeah. player and, and working in hospitality, it's it's having to now go, okay, so people are going to question my decision not to drink alcohol. You know, my family, my friends, they're going to question my decision to, you know, why am I being like that? You know, I don't have a problem. And that is tough. And then you've also got the element of when you're sat there at 12 o'clock at night and everyone else is pissed around you going, I'm tired, I'm bored, I want to go home which is a perfectly reasonable thing to feel as a human being go I but you know I'm tired and it's late at night and I'm not fueled by alcohol and going well maybe I've had a few drinks I'd loosen up a little bit and it you know so it's very it's hard and I think anyone who has found sobriety whether that's with drink or drugs or even managed to start managing personal stress I think big hats off to you because that's not fucking easy it's not easy at all and it's really chewing me up at this moment in time. So it's going to be something I'm going to have to try and dedicate some time to. I've already downloaded a I Am Sober app after this weekend's antics because I slept and I missed my flight back at the boarding gate because I was so hungover that I actually, uh, this was a stag do, obviously, and I was you know one of 35 blokes who felt like that. But I ended up missing my own flight home. Everyone else got on the plane you know, completely in their own heads, didn't even you know, think that they'd left anyone behind. And I'd missed my flight back to Bristol. And I feel shamed by that. It's had an impact on family. It's had an impact on work because, you know, I still don't feel 100% now and it's Tuesday. And I, it's not sustainable anymore. You can't do it. Even on Stag Dudes, you can't give yourself excuses. And we've got Glastonbury Festival coming up next week, which we have tickets for. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to, I can't drink. I cannot drink. Because if I do, I'm going to end up ruining the next week. I'm going to end up ruining my health. And there's a real, real stark reality in that. I think that a lot of people will have been in that situation. And thank you for sharing so honestly, because I think a lot of people will be sitting listening going, yeah, that's it. You know, we say, again, in the rooms of AA, when drinking's costing you more than money, that's when you want to maybe look at your relationship with it. And, you know, there are, I very much 
I'm not a person to demonize alcohol at all. I think, you know, in terms of the manufacturers, in terms of the craft of it, it's something I studied. It's something I have qualifications in. I have incredible friends who work in the industry with alcohol and, and I love it. But I think for me, it was, which we were discussing before we started this podcast, it was those, it's those three questions that I wish I'd asked myself at the time, because it might have been something that would have helped me not necessarily consume as much, you know, where was I drinking it? So am I drinking it in a social setting or was I drinking it at home alone? Well, I was drinking it at home alone. Why was I drinking it? I was drinking it specifically to numb out from the day I'd had because I couldn't bear to be alone, because I couldn't bear to be with my own head. By that point, fibromyalgia was really starting to kick in. So I had a lot of pain. I couldn't sleep. So those are my whys. And I'm sure when the manufacturers were making said stunning bottle of Bordeaux, that wasn't really what they were hoping was the reason that I would have been drinking it. And when, you know, I was drinking when I should have been sleeping. I was drinking, like you've just said, you're on a train. You're going from A to B. What's the requirement of a beer from A to B? It's two stops. It's whatever time, you know, I was on the train this week coming back from London and it's like 11 o'clock full of people drinking. Like it's okay if that works for you, but I really, really doubt there's a lot of people who start drinking at 11 a.m. on a train who necessarily are drinking. I mean, what is the right reason? I was going to say drinking for the right reasons, but I think if you can kind of answer those questions honestly and you can then afterwards go, yeah, I'm drinking it in a safe space. I'm drinking it for my own personal right reasons, whatever that might be. And I'm drinking it at a time that means that the rest of my life is not going to be impacted, i.e. the next day I have an early meeting. It's not going to impact that. Then, you know, crack on. But it's about having that honest internal conversation as you are. I think this is where the gray area is, though, because, you know, Mm. I only drink during social engagements and those social engagements are in safe, safe environments. And, you know, I don't often drink much during the week, maybe one once or twice. And I don't drink at those periods looking for for escape. But what I do know is that when I wake up in the morning, I feel regret irrespective of if that's one beer or you know perhaps it is a stag do or it's a wedding that you've just gone you've gone ham out is let all your inner inhibitions go and so there is this gray area of well, i don't really have a problem but then i know i feel awful and like this week you know i'm people are going well you're a role model chris you should be good and yeah do you know what you try and embody it you gym multiple times you eat healthily you know you make sure that you keep up with your your relationships and, and your connections but you're also human and when you're under a tremendous amount of pressure you naturally look for things that are going to relieve that pressure in some way shape or form so would i say i'm an alcoholic no would i say i have a relatively healthy relationship with alcohol yes bar 20% and that 20% is costing me energy, especially as you get older as well. And as it quite clearly showed this weekend, you know, that that had a profound, profound impact on just simply falling asleep on, you know, <laughs> on a boarding gate and being told you weren't being allowed to let on the plane, despite the fact you can see your mates still queuing to get on the plane. You know, this is, that's fucked. That's fucked up. And it's just a simple hangover, but that shouldn't happen. You should never be in that position. The cost and the lengths I had to get to to get back home, being stranded in another country. I don't want to ever have my judgment impaired like that again, quite frankly. It makes me feel horrible thinking about it. So 
I would just say to anyone, if, if you're listening to this and you're having a conversation with yourself, whether that is drinks, drugs, sex, whatever it might be, and you're thinking, I don't feel great afterwards, but in the moment I think, fuck it anyway, then ask those questions or ask, you know, as I've done, why have I stopped drinking alcohol? And on this I Am Sober app, I've put down because it impairs my judgment and it slows me down from my cause, which is to try and create sustainable change in this industry. And anything that does that shouldn't be allowed in my life. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, some people will say, well, exactly that. I only drink at social events. But if you start to notice that when these things happen, the consumption is increasing, you know, it's that I'm not suggesting you're a binge drinker at all. But, you know, again, it's like you can't take away the weak stress you were just mentioning before that you've been burning the candle. There's a lot going on with Burnt Chef. There's an opportunity to then go and have drinks with your friends you know, who knows? Is there an element that people do go slightly harder in that respect? Because you do carry the week with you, whether you want to or not. And well, you might be able to, you know, like you said, answer it. It's always that why, you know, why am I having four, five, six, seven gin and tonics when two will do? Because I'm still with the same people. I'm still in the same environment. I should still be able to have the same level of enjoyment. But why have I not stopped at two? Why am I suddenly on the, because like you said, you almost press the fuck it button. I'm exactly the same when it comes to popcorn, chocolate, you name it. You know, well, I've had one piece of popcorn. I might as well have an entire cinema's worth. But it is, it's that, it's once that button's pressed and all, everything just goes out the window. And I think the danger is worth alcohol versus popcorn. Alcohol is the thing that affects those inhibitions. And then suddenly it's the way that it infiltrates your your mind, your brain. It changes your responses to things. It's that intense, it, you know, it changes your whole personality. That's why I think it's healthy to sometimes say, I'm just going to take a break and I'm going to see what happens. And within that, I think one of the most important things to do is to not do it alone. That's why one of the things that I'm building within We Recover Loudly is that community. Because when you do do these, make these big life changes, it can feel really isolating and you question yourself the whole time and you think, am I doing the right thing? This is stupid. All my mates aren't doing this. Oh my God, I'm just what? It's easier to not. And, you know, engage with those kind of, there are organizations that you can engage with that can give you that support. But I am here on this podcast saying I will happily be your sober buddy. So if at any point you need to talk, hit me up because um, it's the magic. And it's the magic that you do with Burnt Chef. It's that peer-to-peer support. People who have been there, done that, are the ones that can help change. And that's why the Burnt Chef Project is so powerful because the people that you have working with you including yourself, have got that lived experience. And it's the same when it comes to alcohol, drugs, the whole lot. If somebody can say, mate, I've been there, I know. I don't know what the percentage is. I was going to make one up. You're (laughs) 10 times more likely. (laughs) But you are. You're more likely to listen to them versus somebody who just goes, this is what I've downloaded off the internet. A good friend of mine, Adam Simmons, we, we were in Hamburg also last week so you know if people are wondering well what have you got to be stressed about two countries in less than three days one pleasure or personal and one obviously business but you know when i'm with adam we don't i don't drink you know and we have a good decent conversation a healthy conversation on soda and limes and yeah we might not necessarily look like rock stars from the outside but my god i feel like a rock star in the morning right you know you wake up and go great 
God, what a great decision to make. But unfortunately, no one can bottle that feeling up of gone, hey, let's just take a bit of tomorrow, give you an injection of tomorrow today and go, how do you feel now? But I mean, if someone can work that out, but as you say, you know, it's important for me to be honest and people will call me out and say, Chris, you should be a role model, but I'm still fucking human, you know, and what I will stand by is the fact that I will remain honest and transparent about my mental health and, and my journey. And if if someone asks me and they say, how do you feel today? I will say, I feel fucking emotional. I feel actually pretty fucking low at this moment in time because it's important that we start to normalize conversations around these subject matters and to have a network of incredible ambassadors and professionals who are all ready to get behind the CEO of this company and go, "We'll, we'll help you and we're here to support you should be something that every operator listens to. Because it's not a sign of weakness as a leader to say, I'm fucking struggling with something here. It's a sign of strength. And look at how supportive our team is with that. So thank you, Michelle. Absolutely. I mean, we could have a whole nother conversation about vulnerable leadership, but we'll save that for the next episode. Then Adam is actually going to be a guest on the podcast in the next few weeks. So if you would like to tune in and hear a conversation from Adam about drinking on that front line in the kitchens, it will be coming up soon. Thank you so much for everything you've shared today. I really appreciate not only your honesty and your inquisitiveness and your openness, but I just appreciate you as a human and a friend. And I'm so grateful for everything you're doing for me, for We Recover Loudly, as well as the hospitality community as a whole. So big pat on the back to you, sir. Thank you for everything you do. Burnt Chef Project are a sponsor of the podcast. All of the details of how to access the resources will be in the show notes as well as on the website, which is now live, www.werecoverloudly.com. Any parting words, Chris? No, just thank you, Michelle. Like It's it's an absolute pleasure and honor to not just have you within our network imparting your knowledge, but also to be able to support you with this fantastic journey. And as I've said to you since day dot, there is so much power. And I think this is one of the reasons, you know, why I am doing what I'm doing now in terms of questioning my relationship with these sort of things is that it has such a profound impact. So thank you. Keep doing it. And yeah, I look forward to continuing to support you. Amazing. Thank, thank you, you so for much. tuning in to We Recover Loudly. Please stay tuned for future episodes, subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn for more updates on at We Recover Loudly. If you're struggling with addiction and are looking for support, please refer to the resources listed in the show notes or alternatively check out the website www.werecoverloudly.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, fill in a contact sheet on the website and we will be in touch. We'd love to hear from you and have you share your experiences. This podcast has been produced in association with The Burnt Chef Project and hosted by me, Shell, recovering loudly so that others do not die quietly. Quietly.